This is Thurman Hayes, pastor of First Baptist Church of Suffolk, Virginia. We want to welcome you to this message from our services at First Baptist. We're a congregation that is seeking to touch lives through the life-changing power of the gospel. I pray that you'll encounter Christ in his power and love even now as you listen. Let's pray. And so, Lord, we, we come before you now different stages of our lives, even we've had different kinds of, of weeks and some may be coming into this room today or, or watching online today just needing a word of hope, heavily burdened, weighed down, concerned, and just in need of of, of a word of hope, and, and Lord, we thank you that that hope is in the gospel. Because of the risen Savior that we just sang about, all things are possible. All things can be made new. New life, forgiveness, fresh beginnings, hope. It's all found in, in you. Because of a Savior who loves sinners like us that he went to the cross, bore our sins, and rose victoriously from the dead. Hope is in you. Victory is in you. New life is in you. And so, Lord, would you speak through the power of your word today, through the power of your Holy Spirit to encounter each one of us just where we need it today, whether it's hope, correction, comfort, challenge, Lord, you, you know, assurance, or Lord, just something specifically that we're dealing with. Lord, you, you have the answers. You are our living hope. So Lord, would you speak today powerfully to the people here? And Lord, we think about the world beyond here in, in great need of hope. We thank you for the reach of our church that, that touches the world with the good news of the gospel through our prayers and our, our giving. Lord, we're, we, we see events that are happening in the world and most recently in, in Israel and people even from our, our church who are related to people who are, are there uh, now. Lord, we, we pray for the, the people of that Region, we, we pray that in the, the midst of darkness and war that the hope of the gospel would, would shine through. We thank you that our church gets to be a part of, of, of touching the world with, with the gospel. And so, Lord, what happens here is we are equipped by your word has implications for the nations. What happens here right now in these next few moments counts forever. And so, Lord, help us to lock in. Help us to be eager, eager for your word now. And open up our minds and our hearts and just let you do your wonderful work through your word by the power of your spirit. And we pray it in the name of your son, Jesus. Amen. So, uh, these are the two, two fur babies in the, in the Hayes house. This is, that's Jeter on the left and Judge on the right. If you were at Trunk or Treat on Friday, uh, you will meet 
both of them, they will be there and they love to meet you because they love people and they love to play. And I've noticed that most of their play revolves around two things, flight and pursuit. They are, they are chasing a ball or chasing a frisbee or chasing one another. They're running to something or from something. And that's actually exactly what Paul is telling Timothy and us to do in this text that we're going to look at today. There are things that we need to run from, and there are things that we need to run to. Flight and pursuit. Let's talk about that. Open your Bibles to 1 Timothy chapter 4. 1 Timothy chapter 4. Paul here uh, is, 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 is telling Timothy what to avoid and what to pursue, what to dig into, what to run hard after. So let's look at that. 1 Timothy 4, and we're going to look at verses 1 through 10, if you would follow along in your copy of God's Word. Now the Spirit explicitly says that in later times, some will depart from the faith, paying attention to deceitful spirits and the teaching of demons through the hypocrisy of liars whose consciences are seared. They forbid marriage and demand abstinence from foods that God created to be received with gratitude by those who believe and know the truth. For everything created by God is good and nothing is to be rejected if it is received with thanksgiving, since it is sanctified by the word of God and prayer. If you point these things out to the brothers and sisters, you will be a good servant of Christ Jesus, nourished by the words of the faith and the good teaching that you have followed. But have nothing to do with pointless and silly myths. Rather, train yourself in godliness. For the training of the body has limited benefit, but godliness is beneficial in every way, since it holds promise for the present life and also for the life to come. This saying is trustworthy and deserves full acceptance. For this reason, we labor and strive because we have put our hope in the living God who is the savior of all people, especially of those who believe. So what do we see here in this text about what we're to flee from, what we're to pursue? Well, the first thing is something to flee. The deception of false teaching. So let's, let's look at verses one and two. Now the spirit explicitly says that in later times, some will depart from the faith, paying attention to deceitful spirits and the teachings of demons through the hypocrisy of liars whose consciences are seared. Wow. So that first word in verse one, now it's a little conjunction in Greek, and it can also carry the meaning of however. And I think that's the meaning here. However, because at the end of chapter three, and bear in mind, in the original, there are no chapter divisions, no verses either, for that matter. It's just kind of one flowing letter. And so what has Paul just said? 
at the end of chapter three. He's given this beautiful statement about God's truth at the end of chapter three. But now he's saying, however, some have departed from that truth. He says, in, that'll happen in, in later times. The Spirit explicitly says that in later times, some will depart from the faith. So later times, or uh, the times of the end. The end times. The last days. When is that? It's these days. <laughs> these days. Biblically, everything between the first coming of Christ and the second coming of Christ is part of the last days. So we're in those days. What are those days like? Well, in 2 Timothy chapter 3 and verses 1 through 5, he tells us. He says, but know this, hard times will come in the last days. For people will be lovers of self, lovers of money, boastful, proud, demeaning, disobedient to parents, ungrateful, unholy, unloving, irreconcilable, slanderers, without self-control, brutal, without love for what is good, traitors, reckless, conceited, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, holding to the form of godliness but denying its power. Sound familiar? <laughs> Sounds like the world we're living in, right? He says, avoid these people. But some of the leaders of the church at, at Ephesus, including some of the, the, the elders, had not only not avoided such people, they had become such people. They had become part of the problem. How in the world did that happen? Well, he tells us it had to do with what they were paying attention to. Look at it again. The Spirit explicitly says that in a later time, some will depart from the faith paying attention to deceitful spirits and the teachings of demons. There are many voices that are vying for your attention in this world. Who do you listen to? Who or what are you paying attention to? Let's look at Psalm 1, 1 through 3. The psalmist here says, How happy is the one who does not walk in the advice of the wicked. So, flee from that. Don't pay attention to that advice, that counsel. But do what? Delight in the Lord's instruction. Flight and pursuit. Flee the advice, the, the counsel of the wicked. The pathway with sinners, the company of mockers. And pursue the Lord's instruction. Meditate on it day and night, right? Flight and, and pursuit. Now, I, wanna, I want us to look at four applications, four kind of practical applications of this. First of all, 
watch the company you keep. 1 Corinthians 15.33 says, do not be deceived. Bad company corrupts good character. Second, watch the media you consume. Be discerning both in what you are paying attention to as far as media, whether we're talking about more traditional media like TV or, you know, or social media or whatever. Be discerning not only in the what, but also in how much time. Because even if you're not consuming junk in the media, and there's tons of junk out there, but even if you're not consuming junk, how much time are you spending consuming media? You know, because too much time doing this with your thumb dulls this and this, your mind and your heart. Watch the media you consume. And then third, turn to God's word, the Bible. You can never consume too much of the Lord's instruction, the Lord's truth. I love it in Ezekiel when God tells the prophet, eat this book. And Ezekiel says, so I ate it and it was sweet as honey in my mouth. And then fourth, turn to God's people, the church. Among God's people, you, you will be stimulated and your mind and heart will be provoked to the right things. Hebrews 10 says, let us consider one another in order to provoke love and good works, not neglecting to gather together as is the habit of some, but encouraging each other and all the more as you see the day drawing near. Now let's go back and let's, let's look at verses 1-2 again because we see here both the source of the deception, the ultimate source of the deception of false teaching and also the agents of false teaching. The source of the deception of false teaching is Satan. What does Paul say here? In verse 1, some will depart from the faith, paying attention to deceitful spirits and the teachings of demons. All false teachings ha ha teaching has its origin, ultimately, in Satan. Jesus says in John 8, 44, he is a liar and the father of lies. But then he also tells us here about the agents of false teaching, which are human. The false teachers what does he say about, about them in verse 2? He talks about the hypocrisy of liars whose consciences are seared. Wow. That word seared in, in Greek, it, it, looks, it sounds like the, the, the term cauterized, which is where we get the term cauterized from that, that very word. Kent Hughes says this about it. He says, such teachers have cauterized their consciences. They have allowed them to be so burnt that they have no feeling, no guilt, no remorse. Flee, run from that. The deception of false teaching. Second, we see something here about the correction of false teaching in verses three through 
5. So let's, let's check out the beginning of verse 3. Paul's talking about these false teachers in Ephesus. And he says, they forbid marriage and demand abstinence from foods that God created to be received with gratitude. So we're learning more here about the specific nature of the false teaching that was in Ephesus. We, we've seen some things already about it. We, you know, we saw in chapter 1 that they were into uh, myths that were derived from genealogies in the Old Testament and, and things like that. We saw in chapter, chapters 2 and 3 there was kind of a very um, uh, strong, you know, anti-Gentile uh, strain in it as well. N now what we're also seeing is that there was a strong tendency in this false teaching towards asceticism and legalism. So he says that they forbid marriage. Now, this, this may be because their eschatology was also warped. If we, if we look at 2 Timothy chapter 2 and verse 18, Paul there says about the false teaching, he says, they have departed from the truth, saying that the resurrection has already taken place and are ruining the faith of some. So these guys were teaching that the resurrection of believers that is going to happen when Christ comes again, they were saying that somehow that's already happened. Well, you know, Jesus taught that, you know, in the resurrection, when believers are, are, are raised, that they'll neither be married nor be given in marriage. So it's, it's, it's possible that these false teachers, since they bizarrely believed <laughs> that the resurrection of believers had already taken place, you know, that they would say, hey, marriage is not for that time. So they were forbidding marriage. So it was one error begetting another error, which is the way that it, it, it works. And then there was this legalistic strain in it as well. So he says that they, they demand abstinence from certain foods that, that God uh, created to be received with, 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 grat with gratitude. Now, in chapter 1 and verse 7, Paul says that these guys um, thought of themselves as teachers of the law. They fancied themselves to be teachers of the law, although they didn't understand what they were teaching. So probably what they're doing is trying to impose these dietary laws from the Old Testament onto New Covenant believers. Now, this sounds a lot like the error that also afflicted the church at Colossae. If we look at Colossians 2, Colossians written about the same time as 1 Timothy. Um, Paul says there in Colossians 2, therefore don't let anyone judge you in regard to food and drink or in the matter of a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath day. These are a shadow of what was to come. The substance is Christ. Let no one condemn you by delighting in ascetic practices and the worship of angels, claiming access to a visionary realm. Such people are inflated by empty notions of their unspiritual mind. That, that sounds almost exactly like some of the things that we see in First and Second Timothy. And so now what Paul's going to do is be, to begin to correct this. And the way that he's going to correct it is by giving us this beautiful theology 
of thanksgiving. So let's look at verses three through five and kind of get the flow of it. He says, they forbid marriage and demand absence from foods that God created to be received with gratitude by those who believe and know the truth for everything created by God is good and nothing is to be rejected if it is received with thanksgiving since it is sanctified by the word of God and prayer. You know, who created marriage between a man and woman? It was God, it's his gift. Who created food? It's God, in fact, he even gave us taste buds to enjoy it. I mean, think about that. God could have just made us to consume food for nutritional purposes and not really enjoy it, but no, God gave us taste buds to enjoy it and we're to receive it with gratitude, with thanksgiving. So he corrects the false teaching by teaching us about gratitude, about thanksgiving. The third thing that we see here in verses six through 10 is the application of godly living. And wow, uh, verses six through 10, uh, just so, so good. On, on the Christian life, on the practical application of godly living. He says in verse six, if you point these things out to the brothers and sisters, you will be a good servant of Christ Jesus, nourished by the words of the faith and the good teaching that you have followed. Now this is just so encouraging to me as a pastor, it's so encouraging to anybody who has a responsibility for teaching God's word. Or even if you don't have formal responsibilities of getting, you know, being a Sunday school teacher or whatever, if you're just trying to pour yourself into other people and disciple other people and maybe read the Bible with other people, right? As you pour into them, what Paul is saying here is that as you're seeking to pour into others, let the word of God, let the good teaching of the faith nourish you. Because as you, as you seek to nourish others with the word of God, you're gonna be nourished. As you seek to pour your, the word of God into others, the word of God is gonna be pouring into you. And let that nourish you. So, how encouraging is that, right? That the, as, we, as we seek to nourish others with God's word, we, are, we should, are, are being nourished. If you're not being nourished as you study and try to nourish others with God's word, you're doing it wrong. Because God's word nourishes us. It builds us up. We need lots of that. We don't need any of this. Verse seven, he says, but have nothing to do with pointless and silly myths. That's the opposite of spiritual nourishment. You know, that's like spiritual junk food laced with poison. That's what the false teachers were into. You don't need that. Flee from that and instead pursue that which is going to spiritually nourish you. So listen, we need the right spiritual diet. And 
what he's gonna tell us now is that we need the right spiritual exercise. That's the end of verse seven. He says, rather train yourself in godliness. Now, that word train, the, the Greek word sounds like gymnasium. And in fact, it is the word where we get the word gymnasium. So what is he saying here? He's saying work out, <laughs> work out for the purpose of godliness. Train, discipline, work, work out in, in, in godliness. My freshman year in, in, in college, my dorm was situated uh, look, overlooking uh, the track and field area. And I would notice every day there was this young man out there who was, you know, he was a big guy, he was ripped, he, he was a decathlete. And, and he was in training for the 1984 Olympics in Los Angeles. And so every single day, he'd be out there with the track coach. And I mean, it was just obvious. This guy was incredibly disciplined and he had, he had arranged his life around his, his workouts. You know, the games, the Olympic games, the Isthmian games, all these, these started in the world where Paul was living in, the, the, the Mediterranean world, the Greco-Roman world of the first century. So Paul could see, he knew that the people in Ephesus could, could look out, they could see athletes in training and see the discipline that they had as they trained. And so he's using that as a metaphor for the Christian life. And he is saying, listen, you train yourself in godliness, work out spiritually for the purpose of, of godliness. This gets down to the level of our habits in life. You know, when, I, when we think about the early Christians, many of them are coming out of pagan lifestyles. I mean, we think our world is crazy today and, and, and it is, but you know, these cities like Ephesus, Corinth, places like that, I mean, there were all kinds of, these people that, that most of these people that have become believers are coming out of, you know, pagan lifestyles and everything. And when you read the letters of the New Testament, it's really clear to me, more, the more and more that I study the New Testament, I'm convinced that among these early believers, it was a pretty immersive experience of teaching, training, training them in doctrine, you know, like they had all kinds of false notions that were swimming around their head, you know, and so there was a pretty intense training in the word of God their habits of life, you know, just had to be completely uh, reoriented and things like that. They're coming out of pagan lifestyles. Christianity, as it's lived out, has to get into the level 
of our daily habits. You know, it, it takes blocking out time to fill your mind with the truth, right? Romans 12 says, be transformed, how? By the renewing of your mind. How does that happen? Through the word of God, but you know, that takes time. You, you, gotta, you gotta dig into the word of God. And it's not just what you take in, it's putting out. It's, you know, it's learning to love other people, minister to other people, share the gospel with other people. You know, get involved in the church family so that you're making an impact for Christ. And so, like, it's working out. It's the working out of Christianity in your life, in your everyday life. Learning to walk with God through prayer and depend upon him, on, on and on. Work out spiritually for what? For the purpose for godliness. And then he tells us the payoff for that in verse 8. Look at it. He says, for the training of the body has limited benefit, but godliness is beneficial in every way since it holds promise for the present life, but also for the life to come. Now notice here in verse eight that he does say that, that working out physically does have benefit. In fact, he's probab probably here in Ephesus. The false teachers had the view that the body itself was inherently evil, which the Bible does not teach. The Bible says in 1 Corinthians six nineteen that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit. It says in Romans 12, 1, that we are to offer our bodies as living sacrifices to the Lord. I'm always reminded what the great missionary Jim Elliott said about that in, uh, in, in one of his journals. Jim Elliott said, uh, speaking of Romans 12, 1, he said, I, I'm, I wanna keep my body fit, as fit as I can, so that I have a more fit body to offer the Lord as a living sacrifice. I love that. You know, it's true that we wanna take care of the bodies that God has given to us, right? We want bodies that are as, as healthy and, and as energetic as they can be in the service of the Lord, not for vanity, but for his glory, right? To, to, to leverage that in the, in, in, in the service of, of, of the advancement of the kingdom. So there is a benefit in working out physically, but it has a limited shelf life because these bodies aren't gonna last forever. <laughs> We're gonna get new bodies one day when Christ returns. There's eternity that's waiting. And so what he says here is that working out spiritually, now that doesn't have a limited shelf life. That has an eternal impact. In 1 Corinthians 3, verses 12 through 14, Paul there says, if anyone builds on the foundation with gold, silver, costly stones, wood, hay, or straw, each one's work will become obvious, for the day will disclose it, because it will be revealed by fire. The fire will test the quality of each one's work. If anyone's work that he has built survives, he will receive a, a reward. We sung about building your life. How are you building your life? With what are you building your life? If you're working out for the purpose of godliness, right, that's gold. 
that's silver. That's costly stones, right? That's, that's, that's eternal. You know, in 2 Timothy 4, 2 Timothy 4 Paul's going to use another athletic metaphor here. The athletes that were in training were, you know, in the games, if they, if they won, you know, they, get, they get medals now, you know, around their neck. But in the first century, they would get a, crown, they would get a, a wreath. They, their, their head would be crowned with, a, with the, the victor's wreath. But Paul says this, There is reserved for me the crown of righteousness which the Lord, the righteous judge, will give to me on that day, and not only to me, but to all those who have loved his appearing. I was talking with a friend who, who knows a, it's a missionary in England, but he, he has a, he had a, a, he's friends with a Scottish pastor. And this, this Scottish pastor was, was preaching one day, and, and Queen Elizabeth was there as a believer. And after he finished preaching, he had preached on the second coming of Christ and the queen approached him and Queen Elizabeth said, I wanna lay my crown at his feet. That's, that's what we're going for, eternal impact. Now let's look at verse 10 here. <clears throat> He's gonna use another Another athletic term here in verse 10. He says, for this reason, we labor and strive. That, that word strive, um, agonizomai, it's, it's, where, it's, it's where we get the word agony. <laughs> and, but the, pic, the picture here is imagine a runner, you know, at the end of the race, like some of you are gonna be at, in the 5K, right? When you're... You're, 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 you're making that last final push toward the finish line. And you know, you're make, as you make that final push, I mean, it's, you're giving it everything that you can get. I, I had a, a run this past week and I looked at my watch as soon as I, I was done and I was like two seconds over my goal. Yeah, I just needed, if I had pushed a little bit harder at the end, right? Just a little, a little hard. That's the, that's the picture here, this word. Strive, right? The, the, that, that agony of just that final push at the end of the race when you're giving every sinew and muscle of your body, you're just, you're giving it all. Or like if you're lifting weights, like that, that final rep of the final set, you know, where you're, just, you're straining and pushing, right? That's the, that's the word picture here. And this word strive. So th there is, effort in this, right? There's effort in the Christian life. It's not passive. There's effort, but there's also a balance because we are not doing this in our own strength. What does Paul say in Colossians 1 and verse 29? He says, I labor for this, striving, same word, striving with what? His strength that works powerfully in me. It's his strength, right? So as we, as we strive, as we push forward to be the people that God has called us to be, we do that depending, depending on the Lord, on his strength, 
right? So there's effort, but it's effort with dependence. Dependence on the Lord as we strive. And then what fuels that is hope. Look at verse 10 again. He says, for this reason we labor and strive because we have put our hope in the living God. What fuels us, what energizes us, what keeps us going in the race is hope, which in the New Testament is not something like today. We think of hope today, oh, it may or may not, something that may or may not happen. That's not what this means. Hope in the New Testament means the confident expectation of what will happen. Christ is risen. Christ is coming again. He is victorious. And if if you are in Christ, you're in him. You died in him. You rose with him. Your life is secure. You are standing in grace. You've been adopted as a son or daughter of the king. This is your identity, right? You, you should be surging with hope. This, this keeps us in the race. This enables us to keep going, to keep striving. Now look at this last phrase in verse 10. It, it can be very confusing if it's taken in isolation, but we don't interpret scripture in isolation, right? He says that Christ is the savior of all people, especially of those who believe. Now, Again, if we looked at verse, the, the end of verse 10 in isolation, it can be confusing. It would seem like Paul is teaching universalism that everyone is going to be saved. We know he can't be teaching that. That would contradict everything else that he ever wrote. So we compare scripture with, we interpret scripture with scripture. We know he's not teaching that. And when we understand the context, especially of 1 Timothy, it's clear what Paul's talking about. The false teaching in Ephesus was, it, it, they did not believe the gospel was for all people. You know, they believed it was just for a, a limited number of people. They were anti-Gentile, on and on and on. Now, so Paul throughout this letter is stressing that the gospel is for all. What did he say in chapter two and verse four? That God wants all people to be saved and come to a knowledge of the truth. He says in chapter two and verse six that Christ died as a ransom for for all. Paul is stressing in this letter and trying to get this church in Ephesus back to understanding that this gospel that had changed their lives, it was not something exclusive to them. No, God, this gospel is for the world, for the nations, for all peoples, every tribe and tongue, every race, every religious background, right? And so that's what he's saying here, right? That the gospel is for, is, is, is for everyone. Anybody can be saved, but there's only one way to be saved. Jesus says in John 14 and verse six, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Right, back in the days of the Jesus movement, right, when all those young people were holding up their index finger, one way, they weren't just making that up. Jesus taught that. 
He is the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through him. One way. Acts chapter 4 and verse 12. There is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given to people by which we must be saved. Jesus says in John 10 and verse 7, Truly, truly, I say to you, I am the door of the sheep. The door. The only one. But here's the deal. Anybody can walk through that door. And what Paul is saying here is that everybody is invited to walk through. You're invited. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for the good news of the gospel. We thank you that Christ died and rose again for sinners like us, that life can begin anew. And that, that Lord, that invitation went to us. And that, Lord, by the power of your spirit, you, you opened our minds and our hearts to see the beauty and the love of Christ and to turn to him and trust him. But what about you? Where, where are you as far as a relationship with Christ? He's the door, but have you walked through that door? Listen, friend, you're invited to come. Turn to Jesus and trust him today. Christian, we're about to sing a song called Take My Life. Take my life and let it be consecrated. Would that be your prayer? Do you mean the words that you're about to sing? That means every aspect of your life, every part of it, that means that we withhold nothing. Christ is Lord. It means that we yield every area of our lives to him. We, we put it on the altar before him. Lord, would that be the case in each one of our lives? Speak to our hearts now as we sing. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand together and sing. I hope you've been blessed by this message. Christ is the answer for every need, now and for all eternity. As someone once said, Jesus plus nothing equals everything, and everything minus Jesus equals nothing. Have you trusted in Jesus as your Savior? If not, why not now? His arms are open wide to receive you. It may help to pray a prayer like this. Father, I know that you are holy and that I have sinned and fallen short of your glory. I know that you are a righteous God who must punish sin. But I believe that your son Jesus took my punishment for me, died in my place, and rose from the dead so that I could have eternal life. Right now, I turn to Jesus and trust in his finished work for me. In his name I pray, amen. You know, the Bible says this in John 1:12: To all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. And that means that if you've received Christ, God has adopted you as his beloved child, his very own son or daughter. Just imagine it. Almighty God, the Lord of this universe, the one who possesses all authority in heaven and earth, is now your loving father and you are his child. You say, I love him. How can I honor God with the rest of my life? Well, when you love someone, you want to spend time with them. 
We get to know God through his word, through prayer, and through his people. I would encourage you to pick up a copy of the Bible and begin to read it. Begin to pour out your heart to him in prayer. And find a church family where the Bible is preached, where Christ is exalted, and where his love is flowing. If you're local, I want to invite you to the church I pastor, First Baptist Church of Suffolk, Virginia.